If you brought your Bible with you, I would encourage you to go ahead and get it out and open it up to the 145th Psalm. We're going to be in Psalm 145 this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's on the screen behind me when we get to that point. Uh, you'll also find uh, that scripture along the bottom of whatever screen you're joining with us if you're watching online. Again, it's Psalm 145. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. So February is almost upon us already. seems like January has flown by. Um, February starts tomorrow. And those amongst you who would consider yourself hopeless romantics know that with February comes everyone's favorite holiday, Valentine's Day, right? For some of you, it's favorite holiday, probably a very small portion of you. Uh, for the rest of you, it's thinking, oh, I've got to get something before then in, or in order to uh, make my spouse feel good about themselves. Yes, uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, whatever it might be, you've got to come up with that perfect gift. Many of you already know this as well, but just in case you're wondering, poetry is the perfect language for love. Can I get an amen on that one? Has anybody here, and I'm really asking this, this isn't a question uh, just for fun. I really want to see a response. Has anybody in the room ever written a poem for someone? Raise your hand if you have. Okay, I see a few hands. I see the romantic folks out there. Has anyone ever had a poem written for them? Raise your hand. Yeah, you better raise your hand. All right. All right, I see a few of you raising your hand there. Okay, so I want to give you some inspiration. So I went back and I found a poem that I wrote when I was a teenager. Um, I don't remember what girl I wrote it for. I think I actually used it on a couple. I know that's really bad, but I needed all the help that I could get. Um, so it wasn't for sure. It was for somebody else. Sorry, babe. Um, but I do have a poem, and I, and I want to give you some, some lyrical inspiration if anybody's out there considering writing a poem. This is one line from uh, a masterpiece. I think about you when you're here, I think about when, you, when you're gone. Without you, I'm bewildered fawn. Sitting in the field of loneliness, I without you am like a child, motherless. Isn't that beautiful? Come on, right? That's, yeah, I know, she's such a lucky woman. Aren't you surprised at how Shakespearean that really was? Um, maybe not, maybe you're laughing like I did when I read it again last night for the first time in a while. Um, yeah, that, that's the love language of a teenager, right? Can, those teenage guys, you know, you know what kind of angst can come out as a, as a teenage boy with a crush and you're willing to do anything. That, can I get an amen from the fellas in the house? And I want to go ahead and apologize to all the husbands and boyfriends out there because I know that whatever you come up with for Valentine's Day isn't going to be nearly as romantic as that. So I'll go ahead and apologize to you. But poetry, when it is in the hands of a master poet... Not like that. But what it is in the hands of a master poet can be literally transcendent, right? What do I mean by transcendent? I mean, it's something that takes us out of the moment uh, and, and, and allows us to go somewhere else in our head. Poetry has that capability. Music has that capability, which poetry or music is, is, is poetry set to some sort of, of musical beat, right? Uh, and, and it has the ability to, to take us back. Uh, if you hear a song, whatever era you grew up in, that's kind of your era, the 80s, 90s, whatever. Uh, if you hear a song, there's going to be certain songs that take you back to particular moments in history once you hear them. Um, there, there's going to be songs that, uh, that, 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 that elicit certain emotions that maybe you weren't even feeling or thinking about at the time, but they're so deeply tied to some 
some event in your life that they, they do that. And, and poetry kind of has that capability, again, in the hands of a master poet to kind of take us out of a moment, to get us to think about things bigger than ourselves, things outside of ourselves. And much poetry and song has been written about love uh, and has had that kind of transcendent quality. And one of the places we find some transcendent poetry is right in the middle of your Bibles, in the book of Psalms. Psalms is really a collection of poetry, most of it written in, 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 in that sort of poetic frame, uh, and most of it being a love song to God. Uh, most of the early hymns, if we could even call them hymns, that the early church would sing uh, were the psalms set to some sort of musical rhythm. Um, it's the believed that most of the psalms, or many of the psalms at least, were intended to be sung by congregations. They were poem, poems that said something about the human condition and something about God that pointed us to God and said something larger than the words by themselves could. That's what a good poem does. That's what a good lyric does, is it takes the black and white word on a page and it represents something much larger than that word by itself ever could. And so this morning, when we read the book of Psalms, when we read the 145th Psalm, we're reading one of David's poems, a love poem to God, a worship poem that he wrote to God. Probably the last one in the book of Psalms that we know that David wrote. Maybe not the last one that he himself wrote. Scholars, that's Psalm, but at least the last one in the canon, the last one that we read, if we're just reading through the book of Psalms, is the 145th. It's also an acrostic, which means that each line starts with the next letter of the alphabet in Hebrew. So from Aleph to Tav, which is the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet, each line starts with that. So it's an ABC poem uh, to, uh, out, of, out of response to the goodness of God uh, and expressing love towards and for God. It is a doxology. A doxology is simply, when you break that word down, it means a word of praise. Uh, it's something that you may have heard often, the word doxology, especially if you grew up in certain denominational backgrounds like Methodists, for instance. Uh, many Methodist congregations will sing a song they call a doxology at every service. Uh, not only that, there are some Baptist churches and other denominations that do that as well. Uh, the first church that I pastored, First Baptist Morning, at the end of every song service, we would sing the doxology together. I have very fond memories of that song. Uh, it's a real short, just a couple of lines. Uh, in the hymnal uh, that kind of speak about uh, the God from whom all blessings flow and how all, creature, all creation and all creatures ought to praise God. Uh, and it is a, 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 an invitation into worship as well as a response of worship. The man who wrote the doxology, his name is Thomas Ken. And he's considered England's first hymnist, born in 1654. He taught in an all-boys school or college named Winchester College. And while he was there, he wrote three hymns for the boys to sing throughout their day. One in the morning, one in the evening, and then one in the middle of the night if they had trouble going to sleep. Uh, these were songs that were meant to be sung internally. They could sing them out loud, but they were meant to be sung in the heart. And it was kind of unheard of at the time because in the 17th century, the mid-17th century in England, really the only thing that was being sung in was songs set to music. So this is, he's kind of one of the first hymn writers. That's why he's known as England's first hymnist. And so he introduced these hymns for them to sing throughout the day. They were pretty long. Um, but the last stanza, or the last couple of lines of each hymn that they were to sing throughout the day were these words. And if you know the doxology, you've heard them before. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. 
Again, if you've sung or heard the doxology sung before, you know those words, that response to God, recognizing the blessings that he's given us, that all good things come from him, and how all creation ought to respond in worship because of the blessings which God has given us. These words were so important to him and so foundational to his faith and his work that they were actually sung by the people who gathered together uh, on the day of his funeral. They sang the song as they committed him into the earth. Uh, what a great testimony to leave behind that word of worship. Uh, and so as, as we read David's kind of final doxology, or at least the last one that we read, the last word of praise, I think it tells us something about the nature of our response to the God from whom all blessings flow to how God has blessed us incredibly and how we ought to respond in gratitude. We've been talking about worship since last week and we're going to for another couple of weeks after this, thinking about our response to God, thinking about how worship is more than a song, it's actually a lifestyle in the way that we operate. And as we think about worship through these lens, may we understand that worship is the primary way which we show gratitude to and for God. It's the primary way we express gratitude, thankfulness to God, thanking him for what he has done. And it is the primary way we show thankfulness for God to those people around us so that they might see our gratitude toward God and then respond in turn. And we're gonna see that kind of praise in Psalm 145. But before we open the word and read, let's pray together one more time. Father, again, we thank you for your presence here this morning. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit, your presence, your spirit here with us, within us, and among us. God, I pray that you would cut through the distractions and busyness of our life in order that you might speak through your holy word this morning, that you might implant that word within our hearts, within our souls, in such a way that a work of transformation that you wrought occurs within us and changes us through encountering you. I ask that in Jesus' name, amen. The 145th Psalm, a Psalm of David, titled A Song of Praise. By the way, that might seem like every psalm could be titled a song of praise, but uh, this is actually the only psalm in the whole uh, uh, book of psalms that has given that title, uh, a psalm of praise. So what I'm going to do is, instead of reading it all at once, because it's a lengthy psalm, I'm going to break it down into portions. Uh, what we see, one potential outline for this book, is a promise of praise followed by a fulfillment of that promise. Like David says, I promise I'm going to praise this way, and then he does. Uh, and so uh, we're going to break it down into three different sections, kind of like that. Uh, verses 1 through 3 are going to be the first one. And at the end of each, I'm going to ask you a question that I want you to ponder and think about in the way that we worship God. And so the first promise of praise comes in the first two verses where David writes these words. Again, this is Psalm 145 verses one and two. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. David personally is promising to praise God every day and forever and ever. For it to be a continual part of his life and an part of his life, something that never ends. One of the great church fathers, Augustine, said this in writing about this psalm. He said, think not then that he whose greatness has no end can, never be, can ever be praised enough by thee, 
Is it not then better that he who has no end, so neither should thy praise have end? His greatness is without end. Let thy praise also be without end. I know that's written in kind of old English, so let me just say that last phrase again because I think it's the most important. His greatness is without end. Let thy praise also be without end. God's goodness is infinite. Uh, God, therefore, deserves to be worshiped infinitely. And if you might say, well, that's kind of a tall order that you're asking us to. That's a little bit hyperbolic even. Uh, I would go ahead and, and, and point you to the book of Revelation and show you that his praise is actually going to be eternal. Uh, that we will be eternally praising God. That will be one of our main jobs when we enter heaven is to eternally lift worship to God. And so we are beginning that process now uh, after we have been saved and, and, and justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. We, among other things that we're called to do, we worship him and we're going to do that forever and ever. So as Augustine says, God's greatness is infinite, so may we worship him infinitely. I mean, we worship in a way that doesn't stop. It's kind of the same idea where Paul to the Thessalonians says that we should pray without ceasing, that worship is something that we do consistently. It's not just the way that we sing or just the way that we pray. It's the way that we live. Last week, we looked at the book of Romans and how Paul talked about us being a living sacrifice. It is that same idea that we live a life of worship, that our life points people to the greatness of God. This is what David promises to do in verses 1 and 2. And that he fulfills in verse 3 when he says these words of praise. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. On the size of God, a little bit like we talked about last week. The greatness of God. Greatest God, therefore he is to be greatly praised. Not only that, his greatness is unsearchable. It is unknowable, in other words. Uh, it is not only limitless to the uh, amount that we must praise him, it is limitless according to our knowledge that there is no way we can ever completely understand exactly how great is. We can never exhaust God's greatness. Uh, we can every day for the rest of our lives, and I believe for the rest of eternity, learn something great about God that we did not yet know the day before. God reveals himself to us more and more every day. We learn more about him every day, and we will for eternity. His greatness is unsearchable. So the first question, does the greatness of your worship mirror the greatness of God? Now, let me first pull the veil back on that and say, I'm asking too much of you by asking that question. I realize that our worship cannot adequately mirror the greatness of God. There is nothing of which you and I are capable that can show someone just exactly how great God is. Uh, now, we're all going to give fallen attempts. And so when you read that, that, that question uh, and you see, does, does our worship, does, does the greatness of our worship mirror the greatness of God? Think about it like you would uh, a foggy mirror. Uh, or a cloud and mirror, uh, or a mirror that's imperfect and dirty. Um, it, it still does a good job reflecting, and you can still see your image in it well enough to shave or get ready in the morning, but it is imperfect. It does, it's not a perfect representation of who you are. And as a matter of fact, a mirror is two-dimensional anyway, uh, and you're a three-dimensional person, uh, so it's not getting all of that. So think about it along those lines. I'm not asking you to perfectly mirror God. I'm just asking, does the greatness of your worship show yourself, people around you, the greatness of God. Is the greatness of God evident in the way that you worship? Again, not just the way that you sing songs of praise, 
but in the way your life worships God, gives glory and honor to God, proclaims, as Joel mentioned earlier, worth to God. That's what worship is, worship to God. Does your life do an adequate job of mirroring that greatness? The second promise of praises in verses four through seven as David now begins to extend the circle a little bit. Uh, and now he's not only promising for himself, he's promising for others within the community of God as well. Again, verses four through seven in Psalm 145. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak the might of your awesome and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Again, these are things that he's saying should happen, promises of praise that David is making on behalf of himself and others. But notice one of the first things he says in verse four, one generation shall commend your works to another. Worship is one way for us to tell the next generation of believers about God's goodness. As I mentioned last week, I grew up in a church and I have the songs that I sung as a young boy written on my heart. So when I hear the tune, I am taken back to those moments. I'm immediately reminded of the lyrics and I'm reminded of gospel truths that were taught to me via those songs. Song and worship is one of the main ways we, again, proclaim worship to God. But historically, in the Christian church, uh, songs that we sing together are also ways that we teach the theology of the church. What we believe, how we believe it, why we believe it, what we believe to be true about God. We sing those so that we can proclaim worth to God and make it all about him, but also so that others around us, including ourselves in the next generation, will know who our God is how amazing our God is. For instance, one of the songs I remember singing when I was a child is It Is Well. Many of you probably know that hymn as well. And there's still a a line in that song that every time I hear it, I'm reminded of a deep theological truth about God. And that line is this, my sin, oh the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross where I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. If you've ever heard me talk about hymns, you've probably heard me quote that one before. But imagine being in the room with an author, the author of that hymn and, 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 and watching that process take place, reflecting over the goodness of God and how he removes our sin from us. And, and when he's writing the words, he says, my sin, and then right in the middle of it, It's like, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. And he goes ahead and includes that in the lyric. My sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, not just the part that I'm okay telling you about, not just the part that is socially acceptable, uh, but the deepest, darkest secrets and corners of my heart and mind. My sin, not in part, but the whole. So it's reflecting over the whole nature of our sin. We don't ever wanna get bogged down here. This is not the hope of the gospel is your sin, but it is good for us at times to reflect over the true nature of our depravity, the nature of our sinfulness, so that we can glory in how God has forgiven us of that sin. My sin not in part, but the whole. Reflecting over that, the weight that you feel when you reflect over the whole of your sin. And then here comes the good news. Was nailed 
to the cross. Immediately I see an image of Jesus upon the cross. Images that are presented to me through art and through media and through movies. Those are the ones that usually pop in my head, but I see the image of Jesus on the cross bearing my sin was nailed to the cross where I bear it no more. The weight is lifted off. The heaviness that I felt as I reflected over my sin, not in part, but the whole is now removed off of me because I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Man, what a beautiful refrain of worship. And every time that I think about that song or I reflect over that particular lyric, I'm reminded of the depth of God's forgiveness. I'm reminded of the beauty of God's grace because those who were older than me sang that song, I was in the room to hear it, I committed the song to memory and therefore committed that truth about who God is to memory. And so one of the ways that we commit truth to the next generation is the songs that we sing and the way that we worship. More than a song, but the way that we worship God. And when those who are around us, the, the, the next generation, meaning our children, but also the next generation of believers in the church in general, see the way that we respond to God, they are taught something about God. And they are taught something about how we as human beings relate to and respond to God. And so we're teaching the next generation with how we worship, whether we like to admit that or not, whether we want to reflect upon that or not, we are teaching the next generation in how that we worship. And then there is the promise or the fulfillment of that promise in verses uh, uh, eight and nine, the word of praise. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Verse eight is reminiscent. Some of you might recognize the flavor of that scripture. It is reminiscent of Exodus 34, six and seven when talking about the story of Moses and God interacting with him, uh, the author of Exodus writes these words, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generations. Well, often when that verse is quoted, it's quoted in the context of uh, the idea of, of what's called a, a generational curse, about how the sins of the father visit the sins of the son. Uh, and there's clearly some evidence in that. We see that at work in, in, in the world, uh, how the, the sins of one generation can bleed over into the next. However, we know through the gospel that that curse can be broken by Jesus. Amen? Uh, we believe in that. We trust in that. Uh, because when we focus on just that negative part of the verse, we miss the beauty before it. When it says that God in his steadfast love and in his goodness and in his mercy extends that love to thousands not just the third and fourth generations but to thousands generations might even be understood in that verse and so again we're talking about that generational quality about how we commend our faith to the next generation through the way that we worship it tells uh, the, the next generation who God is and how we respond to him so the next question for you does your worship tell the next generation of what God has done? Could the next generation, your kids, and just the next generation of believers in the church in general, could they learn about who God is just from watching the way that you worship? 
rooted within that is the way that we sing, the way that we pray, but also the way that we live out a life of worship. Does your worship tell the next generation of what God has done? And then verses 10 through 12 are another promise of praise. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Now David is enlarging the circle even more. Now he's talking about all the saints as well as God's works in general. Even God's works by themselves, by themselves are uh, able to communicate the goodness of God. And this time the goodness of God is being communicated not to the, just to the next generation, but to all the children of man, to everyone else on the planet. God is, or David is proclaiming to God, may your works, may all your saints proclaim your goodness back to you in such a way that all the children of man hear of the goodness of God and what he has done. This is the promise. And then the fulfillment of that is verses 13 and 20 through 20, 13 through 20. And in this, we see David reflecting over so many of the, 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 the kind qualities of Jesus so many of the, the compassionate qualities of God, uh, of what God does for us, of the way he cares for the lowly. Again, this is verses 13 through 20 of Psalm 145. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and, rise, and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. God is presented as a benevolent king in the way that David worships the God of all creation, to whom all mankind ought to see through the way that God's people worship him. Because God is not a tyrannical king who uses power to get, but instead he uses his power to serve. His hand is open to those who need. His eye is attentive to the one who cries out and hopes on his name. Our God is a God who hears and responds when someone comes to him looking for salvation, looking for hope, looking for life. Our God is one who gives exactly what is needed every time but our God is also just. It's one line of one verse in a psalm with 21 verses, but it is important to note at the end of verse 20, the Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. It is important to note that God is also just, that God will not allow the mistreatment of his creation, the, the blasphemy of all that he is, all that is good, that he will not allow that to go unpunished. Now, he has poured out his wrath upon Jesus, and whomever places themselves under the blood of Jesus is free from that judgment and free to walk in forgiveness for eternity. But those who do not, they will be punished. The wicked will be punished. Augustine, again, I was reading one of his commentaries this week, in case you're wondering why I quoted him multiple times. But he says this about this psalm. He says, thou seest that there is severity with him 
in whom there is such great sweetness. Our God is dominated by love, dominates us with love. His, his narrative is dominated by love. But even within that narrative of love, there is also a word of, of justice that God will judge and that he will do so rightly. In, in a world where we often hear that perverted and, oh, God is mean and uh, God is, is, is like a, uh, a mean kid that has a magnifying glass on an anthill who just su- makes people suffer because he wants to. And when we often hear God's justice perverted in that way, may we redeem the view of God's justice and, and, and understand that, that in each of our hearts, when we see a wrong committed, that there is something in us, even from a very young age, that says that is not right, that should be fixed. Isn't there something within all of us that demands justice for certain things? If you've ever been stuck awake in the middle of the night and you're watching some, uh, like t- uh, some long commercial comes on uh, where it's, it's about feeding the children in some third world country and you see the devastation and, and the hunger and the, and the way that, that not only physical problems are assailing them, but, but corruption in the government is keeping physical relief from getting to them and all the things that go into watching that kind of evil happen, there is something within you, I hope, that says this isn't right. This should be corrected. This should be made right. That's what God God's justice is, is making all of this that we have turned evil, making it right once and for all. Now that's going to take a sacrifice and some punishment, but here's how amazing our God is. He himself was willing to step down out of heaven and into our sinful flesh so that he might take sin upon himself and bear the punishment that we are unable to bear without him. And so, yes, our God says there must be justice. Next breath, I'm willing to take your punishment for you. There must be punishment for the wicked. I'm willing to take that punishment if you'll let me. It's the punishment that God tells us about. It's the justice of our God. So characterizing God as some mead kid with a magnifying glass on an anthill is so far from the truth. The only way to really characterize God is not with any metaphor, but in the person of Jesus Christ himself who was willing to take that punishment for us. And this is part of the story that we tell the rest of the world. The children of man, as David puts it in this psalm. So here's the final question. Does your worship serve as a gospel witness to the world? Does the way that we worship tell the world about who God is? Could a stranger come into a worship service and learn about the grace and gospel of Jesus? Could a stranger see the way that we worship God and how we live, how we operate at work or school or in community with friends, and see part of the gospel lived out right in front of them? Does our worship tell the world of the gospel witness? And then one last promise in verse 21 that's left open-ended, I believe for you and I to fulfill. David closes the psalm. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. This is David's final word of praise, his final doxology, the final psalm that we know that he penned. It is a beautiful way to end it. He says, my mouth, fill my mouth with words of praise and let all flesh praise his name forever 
and ever. As Augustine said, his greatness is without end. Let thy praise also be without end. Does our worship fulfill the promise that David made? You see, we are part of that all creation, all flesh that should give praise to God. We're living, breathing examples of it. See, I, I love not only the beauty of the psalm, but the beauty of us reflecting on the beauty of this psalm. Because even our reflection on this psalm speaks about the very things that I'm talking about here. David, in worshiping the Lord, shows us through the work of a master poet, putting these words together in such a way to transcend physical human language and point to the glory of God, pens these words, the final psalm attributed to his name tells us about who God is, how kind he is, how great he is, how unsearchable he is, how unendable he is. And in doing so, by his great reflection upon God, he shows us God's greatness. And then he commends that greatness to the next generation. How do I know? Because millennia later, we're still reading his poem and we're still talking about how good God is because of this and many of the other Psalms that are attributed to his name. So it's literally fulfilled in our very reading of it. The next generation is becoming aware of who God is, how great God is, how unsearchable God is, how kind God is. And then the rest of the world gets to hear it as well. What's the most read book in the history of earth? The Bible. God's word continues to be proclaimed almost anywhere on earth. I know there are some places where you can't, but in most places on earth, at least the developed part of the earth, you can find, someone can find, whether they have a Bible in their, on their person, in their home, or accessible online, they can find these words that David wrote and they can give praise to God. All the sons of man are able to give praise to God or hear of the praise of God because David praised God just like he promised to. And so let me ask the questions of us again. And this is what I want you to reflect on as we move into a time of invitation and response. Does the greatness of your worship mirror the greatness of God? Imperfectly, yes, you're never going to do it perfectly. But does your worship tell us, tell anybody who's looking, tell you yourself, does it reflect the greatness of God? Does your worship tell the next generation of what God has done? Are you sharing with your children and your children's friend and, 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 and new Christians in the church, no matter what age they are? Are you sharing the truth of the gospel with them by the way that you worship? Are we commending our faith from one generation to the next in the way that we worship? And then finally, does your worship serve as a gospel witness to the world? Are we proclaiming the goodness of who God is, not just to the church, but who will listen? And the way that we worship, the way that we sing, the way that we pray, the way that we preach, the way that we live, the way that we love our neighbors, the way that we love our strangers, the way we care for the least of these, the way that we worship, we're being a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God as our spiritual act of worship is the way that we walk through this life in a worshipful attitude, pointing others, the next generation of believers, and then those who do not yet know the gospel of Jesus, are we pointing them to him? by the way that we worship. Because worship is one of the ways, primary ways, we show our gratitude to and for God. 
It's about him. It is a love poem offering back to him every time we worship, but it's also about him so that others might hear. If you're grateful for something that someone has done for you, you tell other people about it, don't you? Uh, catch a child right after Christmas or their birthday, and they're showing gift. Uh, anytime we um, FaceTime with the grandparents, that's what our, our kids, especially uh, the younger ones, that's what they will want to do is they'll want to get all the toys that they got for Christmas or birthday and show them off so that grandma or granddad can hear them because they have gratitude. They wouldn't express it as gratitude. They would express it as, look how awesome this dinosaur is, right? That's how they would express it. But it's gratitude coming out in the same way that's our worship to God is expressing our gratitude to him as an offering and for him as a witness. Is that the greatness that your worship reflects? And if not, how might your worship change? Does it need to step outside of just an hour on Sunday morning to change? Does it need to step outside of even during that hour? I wonder what other people are thinking about me. I know I need to just get in and worship God in spirit and truth? Does it extend to certain areas of your life that maybe you haven't fully given over to him yet? How might we give our lives in worship to God and for God so that others may see? Extra credit, homework assignment, if you so choose. This is an acrostic poem, I told you that, that each uh, stanza, each line begins with the next subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. I would encourage you to in your own quiet time, if you want to, not in Hebrew, but in English, try to have an acrostic, an A to Z of your gratitude to God over the last year. Do that during your quiet time and think of something for each letter. I know you're already thinking X is going to be exceptionally difficult. Um, that's fine. You don't be legalistic about it. Uh, the word can start with an E and the second letter could be an X. It's God will say that's okay, okay? Um, but maybe that's something you can do to help with your worship to and for God. And maybe share that with others as a way to share the gospel of what God has done in your life. But I encourage you to reflect over those questions. Reflect over that, that main first one. Does, my, does the greatness of my worship reflect the greatness of God? And then thinking about that to the next generation and to all mankind. How might God move in your life to make that more true? Reflect over that during our time of invitation and response. You can pray right where you're at. You can come down and pray at the altar if you'd like to come and kneel at the steps. You can come and pray with me about this or anything else. I'll be standing right here while we're singing our last worship song. I'll also hang around after the service if you need to pray or talk about anything then. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. The band is going to lead us in the last song of worship. And as they do, would you listen for and respond to God in whatever way he is calling? Father, again, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for, your, for the opportunity to tap into your presence. We know you're always here. God, I, I thank you for speaking through your word. And God, we desire to be a people whose worship not only proclaims your worth back to you as an offering of praise, but also proclaims your greatness to those whom we love and to those whom we don't even know. God, you are unsearchable. You are great and you deserve to be praised greatly and forever. 
God, may we, your church, worship you in that way. And may those who look to us for guidance see that worship and respond in kind. And may our worship be so contagious that it serves as a witness to the unbelieving world around us. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.